Lord Jesus, we thank you for your uh, goodness to us. We thank you that this morning we've sung of your amazing grace and your worthiness and who you are. And Lord, we uh, pray that now you would open up our ears and you'd open up our hearts, that we would hear from you and we would learn from your word uh, what you're saying to us. We pray these things by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, this morning we are looking at the subject of forgiveness. Let me say a few things by the way of introduction. First one to say, this is a big topic. It's much more than you can cover in a single preach. So there are going to be aspects that we're just not going to be able to look at. Um, It's a topic, actually, Quincy mentioned the Freedom in Christ course. This is a topic that we look at in much greater detail at that course. So if you want to know more, as he said, come along to Freedom in Christ. Whether you've done it before or not, uh, it's one of those courses that it's always good to kind of do a bit of a spiritual health MOT thing. So, and as I say, it's a big topic, can't cover it all here. Second one to say, this is a complex topic, forgiveness and unforgiveness. We can kind of talk about some godly principles, but every situation is unique, every person is unique, And so these are principles that we can share, but they need to be carefully applied into lives and into circumstances. The other thing to say, this is a somewhat sober, a somewhat serious, a somewhat sensitive topic. We're talking about a God who is genuinely offended. We are talking about people who have been genuinely hurt, either physically or emotionally or spiritually. And so for me, it's not one that we talk about lightly or flippantly. But it's also a subject that we mustn't fudge. We mustn't because because it does raise things in people. We mustn't fudge this as an issue. We mustn't sweep it under the carpet. It requires, I think, a level of straight talking, because while we don't want to offend or upset anybody, if we don't talk about this straight, I think the danger is that we won't get to the root of the issue. And if you don't get to the root of the issue on this subject, it will not help you. Does everybody get that? We have been going as a church through a series over the last number of months, looking at... uh, being released from cages, spiritual cages on the back of Jenny Meyer's word, whether those were spiritual or mental or physical or emotional. And this is part of that series. And therefore, in terms of this issue of forgiveness, I really want to focus on two things this morning, two areas. The first one is around the area of asking and receiving forgiveness from God for sin. I don't mean in terms of our salvation. I mean the things that we do as Christians day by day, week by week, that we know are wrong. Either we shouldn't be doing them or God's told us to do something and we haven't done it. That's the first area. And the second area is about us as Christians releasing forgiveness to other people who have sinned but we are living with the consequence of that sin. They did the wrong thing, but we live with the consequence, the hurt of it, and the biblical command that we must release forgiveness to them. 
And the reason I want to, if you like, my end goal, my end aim is those two points, is because I believe that a failure to do either of those two things affects our relationship with God. And, and that can lead to our spiritual lives, in essence, being put, if you like, in a cage, being behind bars. There's something that is barring, in a way, our relationship with God. And the way to freedom rests with us. We will be free if we ask God's forgiveness or we release forgiveness to others as God has commanded. You see, the cage of unforgiveness is a cage that has the key on the inside of the lock. Let me say that again. The cage of unforgiveness is a cage that has the key on the inside of the lock. It's not that we are needing God to do something. There are some things that we need God to do something, and until God does something, there's nothing we can do. Unforgiveness is not one of those. There are some things that we need to pray that God will stop the devil from doing it. Unforgiveness is not one of those. Okay? It's, it's a key that we ourselves have the ability to reach out, grab hold of, turn, and open the door. So the place where we're going to end up this morning is looking at these two issues of us asking God to forgive us and us releasing forgiveness to others. But I'm not going to start there. And in fact, I'm not going to speak about that for the majority of my time this morning. But I need you to know everything is building to that. All right? Are you with me? Beautiful. See, we can't start there because those are the applications. Those are the end goal. Those are the things that we must do. But in order to understand what we must do, we first have to understand why. Why must we do that? If I told you just to forgive, the question you would ask is, why? And so we must spend our time this morning, I believe, looking at the why. So I want to look at four foundational principles that I believe we have to get our head around before we can actually apply these to our lives, this issue of forgiveness. And I've put these principles into four statements, and I just want to unpack them. They're there in your notes. Number one, God is the lawgiver and judge, and sin is breaking that law. Number two, therefore, sin is an offense against God only. Number three, therefore, only God can and will judge sin. And number four, God will judge all sin through Jesus or through hell. Those are the four statements that I want us to get our heads around so that we can understand what we need to do and why we need to do it in terms of forgiveness. So let's start. Number one, God is the lawgiver and judge and sin is breaking that law. So it says in Isaiah 33 verse 22, for the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord's our king. It's he who will save us. See, God created the world. Every flower, tree, animal, drop of water, ray of sunlight, and every man and every woman. He gave life to everything that has life, and therefore everything is his, including every single person. He made, he sustains, therefore he owns. And therefore, he and he alone has the right to say 
how he wants his creation to be, to act, to think. And from the very first moment that God created people, he let them know, this is how I want you to behave. This is how I want you to relate to me. This is how I want you to relate to one another. This is how I want you to relate to the rest of my creation. Because I made you and I made the rest of creation. So in essence, I get to say. He set the standard. He set what was expected. He actually set it based on his own character. It was a reflection of what he is like. He wasn't telling people, don't do what I do, do what I say. He was actually telling people, do what I'm going to do. This is what I am like, and therefore this is what I expect you to be like. And so God gave people these good commands that reflected something of his own goodness and love for them, and they became known as God's laws under the different covenants that he had, which is why here Isaiah states that God is their law giver. Okay? God has the right to set a standard for humans because he created, he sustains. And he told them in this number of laws, these number of covenants, they're all be headed up under God's laws. They're written down for us in the Bible. And of course, if you're going to set a standard, if you're going to make a number of laws or commands that reflect you, then you need to enforce them. You need to judge if people are keeping them or if they are not. Otherwise, having commands or having laws is useless. You need someone who who will and is capable of judging fairly and if the commands or laws are broken, can give a suitable punishment in order to, to, to deal with the culprit and to get them to understand that you can't do that anymore and to deter others from doing the same. I was a policeman for 12 years. I understand how the law works. You need the laws and you need to enforce the laws. Otherwise, you may as well not have the law in the first place. I decided to take my dog out for a walk yesterday afternoon it was the afternoon, the dog had been asleep. I put the lead on, I said, come on, Asher, we're going for a walk. We walk out the door, Asher gets outside, thinks it's a bit hot, and she puts her bum straight on the floor. She looks at me as if to say, I don't want to go for a walk now. I looked at the dog, the dog looked at me. Going through my mind was this, I bought you, I paid for you, I care for you, I feed you, I walk you, I look after you, you're my dog. We're going for a walk, Asher. God's a bit like that. You're mine, I made you, I created you, I sustained you, I told you what to do. You don't want to do it? Come on. This is the... So this is, this is the way that it is. And so God's put these laws into place, these good laws, which he had the right to put into place, remember. He wasn't being harsh or cruel. He was putting good laws in place that reflected him. He also had to be the judge. He also had to be the one who would act if and when they are broken. Which is why Isaiah calls him, he's the Lord our lawgiver, but he's also the Lord our judge. Have you got your heads around that? Okay, second point. When someone breaks God's good law, either by doing something that they know he doesn't want them to do, or by not doing something they know he does want them to do, which includes living in denial of his very existence, that's what the Bible calls sin. That's how the Bible defines sin. 
It's this idea of an arrow, that, uh, a mark that an arrow is fired at and it falls short. It falls short of the, of the standard because God's good law reflects himself. Then any breaking of that, is, it's like it's a falling short of what God is like and what he calls us to be like as well. So sin is breaking one of God's good laws because he is the lawgiver. And as the lawgiver, he is also the judge who needs to judge that sin. So we've got to get our heads around that first statement. God is the lawgiver and the judge, and sin is breaking that law. Second statement that leads on. Therefore, sin is an offence against God only. Listen to this. Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, Quincy, I think, spoke on this verse a couple of weeks ago. But to remind you, this is King David speaking, having committed adultery with Bathsheba. He should have been away leading God's armies, but he was lounging around the palace and he saw his friend's wife and he decided to go and commit adultery with her. And then he effectively murdered her husband, who was his friend and an army captain, in order to cover up his adultery. In this case, David has broken several of God's good laws. One's like, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, ox, and anything else that your neighbor has. And yet David here says that he sinned against God only. And strictly speaking, he's right because it's God's law and any breaking of God's law is a sin against God. Yes, it's true that other people have to live with the effect, the consequences of that sin, but the sin itself has broken God's law and therefore the sin is an offence against God first and foremost. In David's case, Bathsheba's husband lived with the consequence of David's sin. It cost him his life. It was terrible for him, but it wasn't his law that David broke. It was God's law, which doesn't alter the effects and the suffering for someone like Bathsheba's husband, but it's very important for us to understand and get our heads around. When you think about it, it's no different than our own legal system. If you decide, because you're having a bad day, to come up right now and punch me in the nose, right, and break my nose, not out of self-defense, just because you're angry and you decide to take out on me because I'm wearing a blue shirt and being very loud, you just get up right now and punch me. You haven't broken the law according to Dale Barlow. You've broken the law of the land. You've broken English law. I might be the aggrieved party standing here with my broken and bloody nose, I might have to live the rest of my life with an even uglier nose than I have already from when I uh, smashed it when I was a kid. But you've broken the law of the country, crown and parliament. And therefore, if you get arrested and found guilty, you will be punished not by me, but by the crown and by parliament. And this is the part that I think is easy for us to fail to get our heads around. And sometimes that's because we rightly feel for the injured party. And it's right to feel for the injured party. If someone breaks my nose, I'd like you to feel uh, kind of bad for me. 
But you know, behind every injured party is sin, and sin, by definition, is against God because God is the lawgiver and the judge. Do you see that? Therefore, sin is an offence against God and God only. Therefore, my third point. Only God can and will judge sin. Only God can and will judge sin. Let me start with the will. Okay, he will judge because it's his law that has been broken. It's his law. He will judge it because sweeping things under the carpet, ignoring things, covering things up is simply not part of God's character. He's not a benevolent Father Christmas figure. Neither is he a dodgy old man who forgets things. He's the God of the universe who sees and knows everything. He will not sweep anything under the carpet. It is not part of his character. Thirdly, he will judge sin because lots of sin that is committed against him causes pain, suffering, hurt, torment, loss, tears, even the loss of life itself to other people. And those other people God loves and calls to live under the same law. Do you get that? God will judge sin because at the back of sin, not only is it an offence to him, but there are people whose lives have been shattered. Let me put it this way for you, just to help to get your head around this. God will judge sin because in effect, one day, Bathsheba's murdered husband is going to stand before God and ask him how the sin of murder that was committed against him is going to be fully and fairly dealt with. Have you ever thought about that? That man who got murdered, he did nothing wrong, is going to stand before God and say, how are you going to deal with this, God? If God is going to make laws, he must enforce them. He must be a judge who acts when they're broken. Not just for his own sense of justice, but what about the cries of the victims? Those living with the consequences of the actions of those who decide to break God's laws. Those who are stolen from. Those who are abused. Those who are beaten. Those who are raped. Those who are murdered. Those who are lied to and cheated. When the Bible says the cries of these people have gone up to heaven, this is what God means. He hears every single one of them. And so God says that he will judge sin. He will judge sin for his own sake and for the sake of the cries of those who are living with the consequences. Secondly, not only will he judge sin, but he can judge sin. Because he knows everything about everyone and every incident. He knows the motives. He knows what was going on in people's heads. He knows what was going on in people's hearts. Time and time again in scripture it's stated, God will and can judge sin. Right back, Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a wicked thing, to kill the righteous and the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Abraham pleading with God when God says, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom because of the terrible sin that's there. And Abraham says, what about the righteous that are living there? Would you 
Would you sweep away the righteous and the evil? You won't do that, God. That's not fair. No judge would do that. 1 Chronicles 16.33 Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This, this picture that creation is looking on and one day will say, no, no, a righteous God is going to judge the terrible things that go on in his creation. 2 Chronicles 19.7 Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. When you look on at another matter that you have to judge yourself, remember, God is watching on and with him there is no injustice, partiality or bribery. He will judge, he can judge, he will judge fully, he will judge fairly, he will judge every single person for the sin that they have committed rightly and fairly and fully. That's the third point. Therefore, only God can and will judge sin. Which takes us to my fourth point. If God is going to judge every sin, God is going to judge every sin through Jesus or through hell. Right? There's no, there's no gentle way of saying this. There's no way of making this slightly more palatable. So I'm just going to give it to you straight accepting that on the one hand, this is the most wonderful news ever, and on the other hand, it is the most terrible news ever. But if we are going to understand and fully grasp the issue of forgiveness, we have to understand this. We have to see this. I believe there are only two ways that the Bible says God can and will deal with sin. One is through his son, and the other one is through hell. I know we'd like to think there's a third way. I'd love to think of a third way. Christians, non-Christians, writers, philosophers have tried to come up with a third way. I don't think there is a third way. Because anything else goes against the character of God or doesn't bring justice for the victims. Let's take David. Let's take this situation with David and Bathsheba and the husbands that was murdered by David because of David's adultery. What could God have done to David that would have made it right with God for the adultery and the murder that he committed? What, what, what could God have done to David that would have made it right? What could God have done to David that would have made it right for Bathsheba's husband? Even if God would have tortured David every day and every minute of the rest of David's life, Bathsheba's husband is dead. His life is ended. His children are fatherless. Even if God would have done that, it would not have been enough if I was in Bathsheba's husband's place. Nothing God could have done would have brought justice. And the truth is we may not have murdered like David. We may not have committed adultery but we've certainly coveted and we've certainly lied and 100% we've not loved God with all our hearts. So even when we think of our own sin and the offence to God and the consequences that others have had to suffer through the things that we've done, what else can a just God do? When I was on Alpha, people used to say to me, I don't like this form of justice that God has. 
And I say to them, great, think about it for a week. Come back next week and tell me what you would do. No one ever did. No one ever did. He has to judge. And the truth is there's nothing we can do to repay or make right the effect of that sin. So it just leaves two alternatives. Jesus or hell. Let's think about Jesus. The first way that the righteous judge can deal with our sin is that another suffers the justifiable, the right consequences of that sin on our behalf, which is exactly what Jesus did. Another one suffers. Another one suffers the penalty. Another one pays the price for that sin, which is exactly what Jesus did. He suffered on the cross for the sin that other people committed, and he suffered enough so that God's own sense of justice, which is perfect, was fully satisfied. And he suffered enough so that God could turn round to Bathsheba's husband, look him in the eye and say, one has suffered enough for what was done to you. Are you with me? One has suffered enough. It wasn't David, it was my son Jesus. But there has been a suffering that is, a, that is proportionate, that is enough to the things that are done against you, Mr. Bathsheba. David didn't suffer it, but my son suffered it. Therefore, justice has been done. So in Revelation 1.5, it says this, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Because God is not bound by time or space. He's able to make the blood that Jesus shed on the cross sufficient for the forgiveness of the sins of every man or woman who would one day put their faith in him or who has put their faith in him before the cross, trusting that God is going to make a way that is fair and just. Praise God, eh? Praise God. Praise God. It's one of only two ways to have sin forgiven, and it involves Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, becoming sin for us, taking our sin and paying the price for it on the cross. That's an amazing Savior. That's, if you're a Christian, why we are such a blessed people. Because there's only two ways of having sins forgiven, and we've had them paid through Jesus. It is the most wonderful news, it is the gospel. It is, it's outrageous, it's ridiculous, it's crazy that God would be able to look people like Bathsheba's husband in the eye and say, no, no, one paid the price. Guess what? Not just one, not just anyone. No, no, my son paid the price. And I paid the price, price watching my son pay the price. I paid the price because I watched. And Jesus paid the price because he went. And so together we've paid the price, Mr. Bathsheba. We've paid the price. Justice has been done. David can be forgiven. If you're a Christian here today, that's exactly what God's done for you and for me. It's the most wonderful news. One way of two. See, that the second way that the lawgiver, the judge, deals with sin is hell. Matthew 25, 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Welcome to heaven, doors open, in you come. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, if people do not have their sin dealt with through Jesus, then on judgment day, God will separate them, goats from sheep. And he will send them to a terrible place to bear the consequences of the sin that they committed against God and the suffering that they caused other people. He will send them there to bear the consequences of that sin themselves. If Jesus doesn't pay, then they will pay. And in that way, justice will be done. So again, let's take the example of Bathsheba's husband. Had Jesus not paid for David's sin, David would have paid for it himself by being separated from God in hell forever. Now, I don't like thinking about hell. I don't like talking about hell. The reason is because I've read what the Bible says about it. Unlike most people that talk about it so flippantly, when I get there, I'll tell God and have a party. See, I've read about it. And it scares me. I read about it after I got saved. I thank God for that, I tell you. It's, t- it's going to be terrible. The description of hell in the Bible is terrible. It's, when people say to me, oh, you wait till I see God, oh, you wait, oh, we'll have a party, oh, my heart breaks. I do not stand there and say, oh, you wait one day. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't do it because I've read what it's like. It's terrible. It's t- Why is it terrible? It's terrible because they're bearing the weight for their own sin. And if the only other way was Jesus dying on the cross, how terrible must it be for them? If Jesus, if someone's got a carrier and it's not Jesus, it's them, how terrible is that? It's terrible. Many years ago, God gave me a picture of a large warehouse building. It was empty of stuff, but people were in it. And people were, it was like there was somebody like, and they were getting up and they were walking around and they were getting dressed and they were eating their breakfast and they were doing this and they were pretending to go to work on the computer and all that and they were going home and they were watching telly and they were they, loads of people just milling around doing life but with no stuff. Are you with me? They're all in there kind of doing life, going through the motions of life, but not there, there was nothing there. But I could tell, oh yeah, look, that one's, they're doing that, they must work in an office, that person's sleeping. And they're all going through life. And God said to me, you know, uh, when you strip away all the stuff of life, you know, the house and the pension and the, and the identity and, and the nice clothes, when you strip all that stuff away, actually, everyone's going through life, but in this warehouse, there was just two doors. One on this side, one on that side. This one said heaven, that one said hell. And at the end of the day, no matter what people did in the confines of the warehouse, no matter what they did during their time on earth, At the end of the day, they all walked through one of two doors. They either walked through the one marked heaven or the one marked hell. That's all that mattered. Nothing else really mattered. Heaven or hell, sheep or goats, eternal life or eternal damnation. And the question is this, 
Have they put their trust in Jesus to pay the penalty for their sin? Or will a righteous, just God make them, require of them what is just and fair that they carry the penalty for that sin themselves in a place that is terrible and separated from him? It's sobering, eh? Sobering. And some people think, well, God won't. God won't. This is a scare story. You know, like you do when you've, maybe you've got kids. And you tell them, oh, we'll cancel Christmas. You know, you'll get no birthday cake or whatever. It's just like that. I've got it all along. I put a verse in there about 2 Peter 2, verse 4 to 9. In your notes. It says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, go on, go on, go on, verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This verse is saying, look, don't think that God's going to change his mind last minute. He brought the flood when he said he would bring the flood. And he wiped everybody out apart from Noah and his family. He went through with it because it was just and fair and right. When he said to the city of Sodom, unless you change, I will wipe you out, they said, I'll get stuffed. No, you won't. He said, no, I will. Well, he brought the righteous out and then he destroyed them. He will. He will go through with it. When the angel sinned, he said, no, no, come, I'm going to put you in chains and one day on judgment day, I'm going to send you into hell. He will go through with this. He won't go through with it because he's vindictive or horrible or nasty. He'll go through with it because he's just and fair. And he said he will. And it's right that he does. And you and I might say, yeah, but what about that person? But of course, he's a righteous, just God. And the cries of the victims go up to him. The cries of those who have had to live with the consequences of people's sin go up to God. And so he's made his decision. I will act judge. Fairly, right, rightly. Jesus and hell. No other way for sin to be dealt with. So now let me get back to forgiveness and unforgiveness. Bearing in mind all that, which is the why, let me just make two simple application points. If you're a Christian and you have sinned, then that sin is against God And Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the penalty. And therefore, knowing the great price that Jesus has paid, knowing that God loves you, knowing that he's willing to send his son to die for you, if you have sinned against him in any way, acknowledge it. Say sorry to him for it. Say, God, I've done this and you didn't want me to. I'm sorry. Will you help me? Because I want to live my life for you. And I love you and you love me. I can't think of anything much more foolish than Christians who will not admit their sin before a God who knows all about it and has created a way to forgive them. The key on that one is completely on the inside of the door. We just need to humble our pride and say, God, forgive me. Second one is this thing of releasing forgiveness to other people. Listen to this verse. 
Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, it doesn't say that you'll stop being a Christian. It says your Father will not forgive your sins. In other words, your relationship with your Father will be strained, which is what we know if we upset our husbands, our wife, our children, our friends, until we go and say, look, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We know that the relationship is strained even if nothing is said. It's exactly the same with God our Father. And so if somebody else has sinned against us, done something wrong, we're living with the consequence of their sin, we are commanded to forgive them. And I always think about this in two ways. We can either forgive them in warm blood or in cold blood. In warm blood, what I mean by that is this. God, you've forgiven me. God, I've messed up plenty of times. God, I've done far worse than they ever did to me. Of course I can forgive them. That warm blood. That's good, that one, isn't it? If we can do that, that's good. There is another, though, kind of forgiveness, which I kind of think of as in cold blood, which is when you can't do that because it might be so serious, so deep, etc. There's nothing inside you that wants to. The command is still to forgive them out of pure obedience to God, knowing that actually either Jesus has paid or the person themselves is going to pay in hell. Knowing that forgiving them is not forgetting it, it's not sweeping it under the carpet, but it's trusting that God, the lawgiver and judge, will deal with it fully and fairly. You see, forgiveness is an act of faith. We are putting our faith that God will judge, that he will not sweep things under the carpet, that he will not suddenly change his mind and say, oh, it's okay, come on in, don't matter. He will not do that. We are trusting that God will deal with it fully and fairly and that justice will be done for that terrible thing that they did to you. That there will be a day of judgment and on that day justice will be done for every sin. It's forgiving them knowing that actually by not forgiving them it's just causing bitterness and hurt in you And it's causing a block between your relationship with God. This person did this terrible thing to you is still controlling how you are and your relationship with God. It's knowing that forgiving them may just be the thing that turns that key that unlocks the spiritual cage that you are in. Because unforgiveness is a cage with a key on the inside of the lock. And I know how hard it is to forgive people for the sin that they do that is against God, but you are living with the consequence. I understand. I've seen some glimpses of that, particularly in my time in the police force. I've dealt with people who have suffered horrendous things as a consequence of other people. So I understand what I'm saying here. I never tell people, forgive and forget. Make up like you're a three-year-old. It doesn't matter. I say to people, no, no, forgive because it will clear you of bitterness and you are trusting that God, who is a righteous judge, will deal with that sin fully and fairly one day.